I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. So hello and welcome back to the Market Maker podcast. This is episode 76. And thank you for all the feedback for last week's episode, where I did bring in Milandeep Bassi, who is the fintech products lead and full stack DevOps engineer here at Amplify. And we talked about all things coding. And do you need to know coding skills to get a job in trading, in global markets, in finance? And yeah, had some great comments from people. Um, who appreciated that episode. So thank you so much for listening. But do this for me. Email me if you have specific suggestions on other things you would like me to cover. I can always pull in members from not just our team, but from the broader Amplify community who are now working industry or from some of my contacts, more than happy to, to get them on the weekly call. So my email address, a.chung, spelled C-H-E-U-N-G at AmplifyTrain.com. Hit me with some ideas. I would love to just, you know, do whatever it is that you're going to get the most benefit from and the most value from. So absolutely happy for you to drop me a mail. Give me some suggestions. If you liked last week's episode about do you need coding skills to work in, in global markets and trading, then yeah, just hit me up. So something else that's a little bit different for this episode is I'm actually flying solo. Piers is still away at the moment, and I've decided to give Milan a bit of a break this time around as well. So the plan of action is I'm going to give you a bit of a general summation of some things that have been going on in markets this week, and then we're going to delve into three main kind of topics, that being the Bank of England rate decision we had this week, also the situation that's happening between US and China over Taiwan, and implications for the market. And then we're also going to talk a little bit on the crypto side about BlackRock teaming up with Coinbase. So first things first, having a look at the broader market, and I am recording this ahead of non-farm payrolls 
which is going to take place in a few hours time. And um, for those who've not come across, across it yet, I'm actually going to cover that live on the Amplify Me YouTube channel. So every now and again, if there's big events happening, like with the most recent Fed hike, uh, I did that live. So if you're ever interested in seeing what that type of thing looks like in real time, I always think it's the very best way to learn is kind of read about these things, prepare for them, watch and observe them, and then in post-reaction, analyze exactly what happened. If you copy, paste, repeat that process again and again and again, it's the best way to start to accumulate knowledge for sure. So um, all of those recordings anyway, if you can't catch the live sessions, go on that YouTube channel, so do check it out. But looking at the, the market as it stands right now, global equity index, so looking at a summation of just generally how stocks are performing around the world, is set for its third weekly advance and a near two-month peak now we are at in global equities, obviously a recovery from these bear market lows. Nonetheless, though, the inversion between the two-year and 10-year yields remains near the deepest since the year 2000. You've probably seen a lot of people pushing that narrative, uh, indicating, of course, about the recession worries over monetary policy tightening. Um, but big part of that rationale of what we've seen, I think, at the moment is this idea that the Fed, given those comments we heard from Jerome Powell in the last meeting about we at the new neutral rate, slightly take, taking his foot off the pedal a little bit on the tightening of policy, is what's helped this, this kind of turnaround in equity markets and kind of risk appetite more broadly. A few other things that we have had is this week, major data point out of the US was US ISM services PMI. Uh, so this is predominantly looking focused, concentrated on the service sector, which obviously is integral to the performance of the US economy. And that unexpectedly increased to 567 in July of this year, so last month. That's the highest reading we've had in three months. So surprisingly strong data there. So whilst everyone was kind of a little bit apprehensive during the beginning, middle of the week, particularly with this geopolitical tension between US and China, uh, this overall kind of reinforcement with the yield curve inversion over the threat of looming recession, that data came in and was very strong, in fact. And as we look ahead now to non-farm payrolls, which is the next key data point for, for markets to really assess then economic conditions and perhaps any readjustments for our thinking over the Fed, hiring is likely to have softened in July, but the labor market does remain a cons uh, consistent, essentially, with an expanding rather than a recessionary economy. And the Fed will press on with rate hikes is the most plausible outcome, at least at this point. And we've heard that similar from other Fed officials from this week. At the moment, the next scheduled meeting for the Fed, of course, uh, isn't actually for a while. It doesn't come until the 21st of September. And that's definitely one thing I was saying at the time when the Fed came out with that rate hike last week was that, look, whatever Powell says, the time between now and the end of September is a long way to go. And a lot can happen, including two CPI reports and two of which one we'll see today, job reports, as well as all the other information we'll get to hand as well. So yeah, with a lot of fluid things happening at the moment, particularly US and China, still observing the Russian situation, China lockdowns on COVID and so forth. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to digest. And so as much as the markets are priced right now, and what does that pricing look like for September? 
markets are currently leaning in favor of 50 basis points rather than um, a move inconsistent with the back-to-back 75s that they've done. It's a pretty tight split, though. At the moment, market pricing in the short end would suggest around a 60-40 split in favor of 50 over 75 for the course of action in September. But as I said, we'll continue to watch very closely. Interesting comment on a lot of this came out of Goldman Sachs at the end of this week, who said, we are firmly in a bad is good and vice versa tape right now. Now, that might sound a bit odd. And what is that referring to? Well, it's a general term that gets used when you're talking about the equity market. And this is what makes equity trading quite quite difficult from a directional uh, point of view, comparative to more direct assets like the currency or the yield in fixed income. And that's because you have this kind of gray zone where if things are really bad and we start really going full board recession, let's say fears take hold and the data starts to soften, what typically starts to happen is it magnifies then the divergence between Wall Street and Main Street. So while things get materially worse for us in our day-to-day lives in this cost of living crisis, the reaction function of that is for then central banks to come off the pace of tightening. So in a sense, become more accommodative and therefore that is more beneficial for equity valuations and stocks start to front run then what is then uh, a readjustment to a less aggressive pace of monetary tightening is the current situation we're in. So it's one of those where if things get really bad, it's actually good for stocks and then the vice versa can happen. So that's what it means when gold makes a statement like that. And definitely we're kind of within that zone at the moment. But let's talk about a couple of the other things that have been going on this week. And one of the big headlines was that of the Bank of England. They've kind of stepped up then their pace of rate increases, a 50 basis point move to 1.75%. Importantly, though, it warned the UK is heading for more than a year of recession. And actually, I was talking to some of the interns this morning, and we were going through uh, kind of tick data on the sterling chart and it was initial blip higher on the algo kind of hit on reaction of the 50 delivered and then the market sold off and it sold off well in excess of a full point given then the depths of economic slowdown we're expecting as inflation really takes hold um so for context this is the sixth now consecutive rate hike from the central bank actually was the largest single increase since 1995 that we've seen as far as the UK is concerned. One of the things that's really key with this particular meeting, remember, much in a similar fashion to what we have with the other central banks, like the Fed and the ECB, which are a little bit more standardized around the normal calendar, kind of quarterly basis when they release their projections. So March, June, Sept, Dec, the Bank of England is slightly off that routine. And so August is when we get their latest monetary policy report. We won't get the next one till November. And quite simply, this is then their outlook for things like inflation and growth. And what that allows markets to do then is to make certain assumptions about, from the economy, what interest rates might likely be over that time horizon. And one of the key things there, the bank boosted its forecast for the peak of inflation to a pretty mind-blowing 13.3% in October. Comes amid the, the surge in gas prices. They warned that price gains will remain elevated through 
2023 and obviously october very key gonna leg up again with those energy price tariff increases to come in hit the consumer once more but the point they're saying though is that's going to remain elevated and that's going to really weigh on the economy going forward so yeah it's been quite incredible really and this really goes to show how fluid the situation of 2022 has been because i remember more broadly the bank of england's initial forecasts not that long ago were originally calling for inflation to peak at around the high five percent then the seven percent then we get to the the region of where we were in the most recent situation which was a forecast of 11 and that's just been upgraded to 13.3 percent which is uh, you know fantastically high i think we've got to go back to really the 80s early 80s since we were at that kind of level and so the worst is still yet to come uh, at the moment as far as the uk is concerned sterling has stabilized and net net we're at a scratch really um, taking out the volatility of that initial sell-off that we saw um, at the moment and perhaps the british pound catching a little bit of a reprieve from the site cooling off of the dollar for the reasons i explained because of this idea of you know are we over the most aggressive part of the tightening cycle coming out of the us which has just taken a bit of heat out of that appreciation uh, of the greenback bank of england the central bank kind of forecast suggests inflation could fall below its two percent target by the end of 2024 that's what they're looking at so that demand fade really starts to come in um, after these persistent near-term price pressures bite, and then we have the economic slowdown. Um, they said that even if energy prices remained high for longer than markets currently expect, and if the Bank of England took no further policy action, with interest rates constant at a new level of one and a quarter percent, so that's if everything remains the same, they would foresee then inflation coming back to target, or in fact below the two percent target by the end of 2024. That's definitely a moving goalpost, and you expect that to be the case as more information comes in as the economy evolves. Um, a few other final things on the BOE. Very important comment they made. They said policy is not on a preset path, and what we do this time does not tell you what we're going to do next time, <laughs> is what the Governor Bailey said, uh, adding that all options are on the table at our September meeting and beyond. And I think this is pretty much a carbon copy of what Jerome Powell at the Fed said most recently at their meeting. And I think it's the only way to play it as a central banker, as much as you try to forward guide the market as to your intentions to try to um, minimize market disruption. The problem is, is that the situation is evolving so quickly that, as I said earlier, now to the end of September is a long period of time in global markets. And so a lot can happen. So it's better to just keep everything on the table right now and then as you get closer to the meeting, utilize then your policy committee members through speeches and so on to then refine that messaging as you then come into that period of time, I, I guess is the strategy. So overall from the Bank of England, I guess you could sum it up as tough love. Um, the immediate inflation outlook is so dire now that the Monetary Policy Committee uh, feels, I guess they've got no option but to engineer a more severe economic downturn. And that in itself then is why a lot of people remain particularly bearish for the British pound at the moment. And I, I do think I have read UBS have trimmed their sterling call against dollar down to around 115 in Q4 of this year. I think they were sitting up at around 125, 126 in their prior forecast. 
All right. So other things, two more we'll look at. China likely fired missiles over Taiwan for the first time during its biggest military drills around the island in decades. I'm sure you read about this in mainstream media. Uh, it comes as Beijing protested US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei this week and marked one of the most senior US politicians to visit the island in a quarter of a century. And in fact, just before I jumped on, China have come out and formally outlined eight new measures, um, of which does include halting climate talks, this is all with the US, cancelling dialogue with military leaders and cancelling working with the US Defence Department. So for sure, it has escalated. Uh, and we are seeing lots of different types of sanctions and, and so forth. And we probably can expect more to come. So I guess the question is, just looking at this from a more broadly on the top level, why is all this such a big deal? And then we can talk about market implications and how it's played out uh, and what to potentially expect in the future. So at the heart of the divide is that the Chinese government sees Taiwan as a breakaway province that will eventually be part of this kind of one China policy. Uh, the Taiwanese people consider themselves self-ruled island uh, to be a separate nation. So that's what's the, the kind of crux of it from that perspective in the Far East. Where does the US fit into this and why are they so bothered um, about this relationship of what we call strategic ambiguity? Now, what that means is the US government doesn't make it clear when it would or wouldn't intervene on what circumstance militarily. Biden's made a couple of bloopers, uh, as he commonly does, by saying he would defend Taiwan, of which China does not take kindly, um, because he should be then, and his aides do often, walk back his comments and fall back onto this ambiguity-type commentary. Um, so why are the US so bothered about someone like Taiwan? Well, in fact, Taiwan is the United States' eighth largest trading partner. So I don't know if you knew that, but even when I read that, I find it quite surprising um, just to kind of reiterate that point. So it's quite a key trading partner. Um, and in fact, the United States is Taiwan's second largest trading partner. Uh, and of course, China being right up there. So what is it? I guess it's good to know a little bit about what is it they're trading to give you context, particularly when it comes to the types of sanctioning and things that might materialize from this. So electro, uh, electrical machinery is number one followed by machinery more broadly, then vehicles, iron and steel products, and then plastics. Um, Taiwanese cumulative investment in the US, so talking about directional investment into the US, was nearly 137 billion as of 2020. Uh, Taiwan's direct investment in the US is led by manufacturing, wholesale trade, depository institutions. Um, these investments directly, according to the US government, support an estimated 20 21,000 jobs in the US uh, and account for around $1.5 billion in US uh, exports. So, yeah, th this isn't going to go away quickly. Um, the military live drills, I think, concluded or are yet to conclude, I think, on Sunday this weekend. Uh, Pelosi's already kind of been and gone. Uh, obviously, the, the rhetoric is still pretty sharp coming out of China at the moment in terms of these countermeasures. I think the main thing here from a market's perspective is as much as we did see the lights of gold when all of this was heat, uh, reaching its kind of peak of interest when she was arriving in Taipei, um, gold did hit a one-month high. Um, in fact, it jumped 
on Thursday um, the most it has done since March of this year. Uh, and gold has actually risen about 6% from the low seen on the 20th um, of July. It's been benefiting more than just a flight to quality on geopolitical risk. There's obviously been the weakening dollar we talked about already, uh, falling US bond yields as well. Same scenarios. We're coming off some of that peak of Fed tightening expectation. Um, but yeah, point I want to make is just if you're new to observing markets, trying to really cut through the noise of what the gender is of mainstream media to push and certain people on social media, for example, as to what then is the actual reality of what us as investors would look at. And so you know, as an investor, you're just looking at these types of scenarios from a risk probability perspective. So it's kind of what is the risk factor that this could manifest into something more meaningful? Um, and a good example of this, I would say, albeit it is different, uh, I must run, run, is that of what was happening in North Korea in 2018. There was a point in 2018 when, as you remember, this is when Kim Jong-un was firing um, apparent mastery of the miniaturization of nuclear warhead strapped onto an intercontinental ballistic missile. I mean, obviously that sounds incredibly scary. And at the time he was getting more progressive in the frequency of these tests and the location of these, particularly with the proximity and direction of firing toward Japan, Northern Japan. Um, and he got to the point where it was getting more and more and more and Trump and the administration in the US were talking about all the different things that were happening movement then and strategic positioning of US Navy and so forth who are obviously uh, allied forces with Japan. But the point was is that the friction could only go so far. Because in the end, there is no way that the US, well, of course, there is a way, um, the probability is so exponentially low of the US taking military type intervention on North Korea, for the main reason of the response that that's likely to see from the Chinese. And that then put a cap on how markets started to perceive then where this type of rhetoric coming out of North Korea, for example, would end and the risk factor associated with it. So what you used to see was during a typical trading day, they might fire a missile. There is a very short period of time where we as market participants, much like the individuals within the government, are tracking the direction, speed to try and uh, project then and forecast where this missile might land. And it's always going to be somewhere of close to, but not of strategic um, importance to, to actually cause damage. This is a warning shot, but in the most real sense, if you like. And so you would typically get a little bit of a pullback in stocks, confirmation then that it was landed in the, the sea, for example, and then stocks would go well bid again. And it was a better value position to just get long for that trading day more than anything. And safe in the knowledge that really there was nothing that the US could do to escalate the situation further. There was nothing then that North Korea would do in order to then seriously jeopardize that position because the main stranglehold on North Korea really is China. 
And if North Korea was to do something stupid, that would jeopardize then the US relationship from a trade perspective with um, China's trade relationship with the US. And that's a massive problem. Their relationship is born out of necessity. And if that was jeopardized, China would soon see fit to take care of the North Korean issue. And so there it's capped. And so ultimately the market just kept rallying over that, that period um, with kind of these blip pullbacks. And you know, one thing that you get with the types of action that we've seen, obviously these are live fire rounds. And if you're not used to reading this type of uh, information, it can sound quite scary and it can sound quite frightening, but you know, tension in, the, in that geographic area of the world is not uncommon. This is an escalation. Um, but I think the markets have shown you that, yes, there's a degree of pricing in of an associated risk, but it also gets priced out quite quickly. And I think when you step back from the intraday noise and ask yourself the bigger questions, what is then the end or what is the approximate probability of a full-blown fallout between the US and China? It's minimal. And so they can sanction individuals, they can pull out of climate change talks, X, Y, Z, and ultimately that can be destabilizing short term. The long term picture is still very much an integral relationship dependent on each other. And so as much as contentious as it's going to be, you start layering in the, um, I guess, optics of having to manage quite tricky domestic situations, both independently with Xi looking to get an, you know, kind of a historic third term and with the midterms in the US just on the, on the corner, you know, there's going to be a lot of noise, of course. Um, so they try to manage that, that national situation. So yeah, that, that's really all I have to say on the matter for, for that. I think just don't read too much or buy into the hype um, at this point in time. Markets, as they say, are reverting already back to the bigger, broader themes, that of inflation, that of the economy, prospects of recession, and monetary policy. Uh, and I would expect that to remain the case with the dust settling now already on this, this US-China uh, issue. And then the final story, just to mention, just to wrap things up then, is about BlackRock. BlackRock, obviously infamous. It's the world's largest asset manager. And they've teamed up with Coinbase. Um, I mean, Coinbase have just got absolutely obliterated during this kind of very destabilizing period for, for crypto overall, of course. And I'm just going to quickly <laughs> pull up the, the chart for Coinbase. And we were trading in Coinbase shortly after what, November of 2021. We were trading nearly 400 bucks, 370 bucks a share. And we've been hitting a floor key level for Coinbase is really around 50 bucks or just below there is, is the actual low print. Trading this morning, though, and we did trade yesterday through 100. The shares actually spiked a decent, like 15, 16% for Coinbase. And I felt a bit sorry for, I think I was reading uh, about Kathy Wood, the, the tech innovator investor, who I think was piling into Coinbase shortly after the IPO. But I think she bailed on large holding uh, not so long ago, just missing out on this little 15% pop on the upside. So what, why is this such a big deal? 
Uh, obviously, crypto has stabilized a little bit. We've had a bit of a comeback. Bitcoin this morning is trading above 23,000. Ether uh, ju just closing in on around 1,700. So we're well off the, the worst that it has been. But it's been a tumultuous period year to date for the crypto space. So this relationship, you know, what's it all about? Why would you know the world's largest asset manager want to team up with a crypto exchange? Well, the relationship will provide institutional clients of Aladdin. So if you've never heard of Aladdin, it's the platform that BlackRock uses, the kind of end-to-end -end investment management platform. And being then the world's largest asset manager, they want to give people as many opportunities in order to uh, have access to markets and direct access to crypto, in this case, starting with Bitcoin. And they're going to do that through Aladdin, connect with the connectivity with Coinbase Prime. Now, I'll be honest, I hadn't even heard of Coinbase Prime until this week and this deal came up. Um, and if you've never heard of Coinbase Prime, it's actually a leading institutional prime broker platform for crypto assets. And I was quite surprised when I read it. It's used by over 13,000 institutional clients. And to put that relationship in context, institutional investors accounted for about three quarters of the $309 billion in trading volume on Coinbase in Q1. So again, just to reiterate that, so about three quarters of the entire volume on Coinbase is not your retail Joes, it's your institutional investors. Um, so hedge funds, corporate treasuries, asset managers, and, and so on. So yeah, that's quite, quite a big story, um, both for, I think, the story of where we're heading at the moment i think everyone gets a little bit short-sighted when we have a big meaningful pullback in the crypto space just about then everyone gets hyped when it's rallying hitting like 60 70 plus in bitcoin when it gets hammered everyone's saying it's you know the end of days and it has no place but the idea here in summary i feel is that crypto currencies are here to stay irrespective of who in the end are the winners and the institutional clients are going to have to increasingly have access to the crypto economy and BlackRock know this. And so, yeah, it's a strategic move. It's good for Coinbase. Um, definitely who've had such a tough time this year. Um, but for me, it just goes to show that there's appetite for institutions to transact in the crypto economy and that's only going to intensify over the long term and so the future remains strong i would say um for for those involved all right so that is it not going to keep you any longer than that and so thanks very much for listening again a little bit different this week just me but rest assured peers will be back to to jump on the the episode for next week so have yourself a fantastic weekend take care wherever you are all right speak to you next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.